Hi everyone, it's Aliza Licht here, your host, and I'm so thrilled to share that my new book, On Brand, Shape Your Narrative, Share Your Vision, Shift Their Perception, is out now. I hope you'll pick up a copy because personal branding is for everyone. It's for the new graduate starting out, the middle manager looking to level up, the executive who wants to be a thought leader, the entrepreneur starting from scratch. It's for anyone who wants to pivot or transition into something new. Because having a strong personal brand means that your name gets dropped in rooms you're not in and that you're thought of for opportunities that other people haven't even heard of yet. So pick up a copy and I can't wait to hear what you think. Hi, this is Aliza Licht, and this is Leave Your Mark, the podcast, where I brew fresh career advice in conversation with some of my most inspiring and successful friends. It's professional advice that you can action immediately, whether you're just starting out in your career or well on your way. With a massive to-do list and a large cup of coffee, I promise that you can get it all done and still have time to post about it. Jamie Goodfriend is here today. Welcome to Leave Your Mark. I'm so happy to be here. I am so happy for you to be here. So for everyone listening, Jamie is truly, and I say this without exaggeration, a unicorn marketer. And I think maybe I just coined that term because I don't think they call marketing people unicorns. They call (laughs) companies unicorns. I'm going to trademark that. She has helped brands benefit from emerging technology You're a renowned futurist, you're a trend spotter, and you have kept companies ahead of the curve your entire career. You're currently a strategic advisor to Super Awesome and a board member to Tubular Labs. And your previous experience, lots of corporate major experience, you were chief consumer experience officer at Hasbro, you were the global CMO at Wonderman, you were the chief strategy officer at CAA, and business development director at Microsoft, among other amazing positions. But those are just a few to highlight. So we have so much to learn from you. For everyone listening, Jamie and I actually met at a conference called Patau in 2014. Oh boy, that was a long time ago. It was a long time ago. And I think what's really funny is like, we met under kind of weird circumstances. We shared like a psychic medium appointment together. Like, I don't know what made us sit down. We're like, let's just do it together. Like, what were we? It was I so- don't know. I'm not really like the psychic medium person, but you just called me to it. I think it was the red hair. <laughs> you were a siren, a psychic siren. I don't know. I mean, I just rem- She was good though. She was really good. Freaky good. Yeah. My cynical self was meant to, I believed. I believed too. I've spoken to her years later. You did? I have, but you know, she's gone off the grid right now. So I don't know what happened to her, but (laughs) she was doing a lot with the LAPD actually. I love that stuff. I know. Good Lord. It's crazy. So anyway, we just connected and I love that like we barely see each other ever except for like tweets and DMs, et cetera. But like, I feel like I saw you yesterday. We have an elationship. I monitor you. I feel like you're in the zeitgeist and I Every now and then, like to pop up and say hello. Yes, I, I do will love say, that. After I met you, it did remind me because I was, I, you're being very kind because I was fangirling because when you were DK and YPR girl, I was so excited to, that I got to meet you. <laughs> and when I got home from that conference, I'll never forget my very first luxury purchase was a Donna Karen <laughs> out dress that I think I spent my entire bonus on in the early 80s. And by God, it was black and gold. I almost wore it last night, as a matter of fact, as an homage. Still good. It's still good. Absolutely. So you are truly a powerhouse. And 
I think that your background is so incredibly diverse that it's going to be so interesting for people. Where did your story begin? Where are you from? I don't know a lot about your sort of back history. I know about a lot about your work life. I'm a Midwest girl. You can tell. I can, actually. I'm a Midwest girl. Little Chicago, little Cincinnati. And um, my dad was in the shoe business. And I think from an early age, I liked selling. And when my parents got divorced, my dad used to take us to shoe shows. That's what we did with him. And I was kind of bored, so I just decided to start selling. He was on the corporate level, and I was selling. And I think his employees probably hated him, but I really got the bug. And so I learned to read a room and figure out what would make people make a decision. And that was just hardwired into my DNA. Wow. And then kind of went on from there, but was always relentlessly curious. So growing up then most of my life in Palm Springs, California, which I like to say is the town time forgot. So if there's anybody listening of the three people that left Palm Springs, hello, we probably all know each other. (laughs) (laughs) There were not many people there that were under the age of 90. And I was just really curious and I wanted to break out of that town. So I was reading a lot. And anytime I could travel as a kid, we did. And I was really curious. And I stayed with that curiosity my entire life, which is what's been taking me on my path. So you just got back from what's called the Hoffman process. Yes. I have never heard of the Hoffman process. So I would- will. (laughs) I know. So tell everyone what that is. It sounds so mysterious. Like I picture you in the show Lost in that room, just pressing a button. Okay. Well, I'm unlost. <laughs> Is that a phrase? I'm unlost. Okay, now we'll I'm make found. it. We may like it. It's an interesting. It's been around for I think 30 years, and I've been dying to do it. Many of my friends who I really rely on their decision making capabilities and just their great sound advice are graduates of Hoffman, and I'd been hearing about it. So I found myself with a little bit of extra time. It's been my bucket list. So I'm in the process of checking off things on my bucket list. And what it is is a deeply experiential opportunity to, well, they make you eliminate all distractions. And I'm telling you, it's not just a digital detox. It's a distraction detox. No drinking, no email, no contact with the outside world, no reading, no music. It was a complete, you have to sit with yourself and really figure out what's going on without the benefits of distraction. The only distraction was food. So that's the one thing. It's not a spa. I kept joking, wait, where's the spa? There's no exercise. (laughs) But it, what it really does is it enables you to go back and look at why you are the way you are. It's deeply involved with your childhood and how your parents raised you, what patterns you got from them. And it forces you to go to places that you might not. And it really gave me some deep insights that I think I was afraid to be aware of. But at this point in my life, I was ready. And wow, I'm not a woo-woo kind of person. So I was really resistant. And I had an incredible experience. How long were you there for? You arrive on Friday night and you leave the following Friday and you spend that next weekend kind of marinating. So it's like a nine-day commitment. Do you engage with other people or you don't engage with other people? It's a fully group experience. Okay. And it's not a silent retreat. There are moments when you're silent. So you fully engage. I had a roommate that I didn't know, who you actually know, Carrie Leitzis. Oh, my God. fellow redhead, yes. Oh, wow. fell madly in love, which the kind of intimacy that you get after spending a week with somebody And there are about 40 people, really interesting, all mixes, creatives, housewives, some young kids, a young man who's training to be a firefighter who lost his father. 
it's people coming that are seeking. And it was really helpful to be in a group setting in a place that you wouldn't normally encounter people. Wow. That's so cool. Which brings me, so you said you took this like deep dive into your historical experience. Like, what were you like as a kid? What did you think you wanted to be after that whole sales experience? I was a complete overachiever. And I was an award seeker. I was like... I'm not surprised, by the way. I mean, but for the wrong... But for the wrong reasons. I'm like Reese Witherspoon in election. Oh, my God. I get that a lot, actually. I I think it's an insult. (laughs) I've taken it as a compliment. So now I'm just trying to channel it in a different way. If there was an award or a prize or something, I was chasing it. So you're super type A like Uh, Super type A. But I found that that's a fine thing if you're doing it for the right reasons. Absolutely. And for me, it wasn't necessarily about the achievement, it was about being seen. Mm-hmm. And I think as a woman growing up in, you know, the 70s and 80s, that I'll leave it at that, being seen was a little more challenging. And it was acceptable to be seen when you were winning an award or giving a speech or whatever it was that was positive. And I think I craved that in a way because I was so ambitious and curious. And there were not as many paths in those days. I mean, I worked early on, I worked in PR. And then I worked in sports marketing and in the sports marketing world. And this was in the eighties. There were not a lot of women sure, and there were not a lot of role models. So I didn't have a good path. And so the only way I knew how to be was following in the footsteps of the women that I saw, which were over, over, overachievers. And that's what you had back then. And people say, well, did you have a mentor? Did you have a partner? I've had a lot of people that I was really influenced or inspired by. Dawn Steele was somebody that I still have an article about when she, you know, some of her accomplishments when she passed away. I was really sad. She really inspired me from afar. Mm -hmm. Um, But there weren't that many people. It just, it wasn't done. It just wasn't done. It wasn't a thing back then. I totally agree. So you ended up going to BU and you graduated with a BS in communications. Yeah, BS. Yes. I have a BS also. I love that. So, I mean, how did you get your start after the college? Yeah. I wanted to be a newscaster originally, but I didn't know. You have been a really good newscaster. Thank you. So I think that's still, it's kind of what I do. I tell people what's going on, or at least I hope to, and provide a little insight. But I didn't know how to do that. And all I wanted to do was move to New York. I wanted to get myself to New York. It was the 80s. I wanted to be here so badly. So I graduated school in three years and I moved to New York and I took the first job I could get which was in PR. And it was one of those funny experiences where I worked for a firm that was doing PR for movies and they were doing Dawn of the Dead. And my boss was a lovely woman, but she had just come back from having a nervous breakdown. I think that's what you called it in those days. Oh boy. And we sat in this little cubicle and she chain smoked and I was a terrible typist. It was typing then. And she had a quite an extraordinary last name, which I I won't say, but uh, make a long story short, after about three weeks on the job and we were putting together the premiere for George Romero's Dawn of the Dead, Early Zombies. She unfortunately had a collapsed at work. They carted her out in an ambulance. And the owner of the company came in to me and said, can you take over? And I said, sure. So I organized the premiere of this movie in Times Square. And of course, because I was very into the club scene in the 80s, I figured out a way to then have the party at a really cool club called Area. Yeah. And I made friends with the manager, which I realized were all kinds of side benefits. And I had a zombie party at Area. And that just kind of got me into the whole event marketing world. And eventually, I realized I needed to pay the bills. So I went from that to really corporate PR, which was funny because I still had club kit clothes. 
And I brought that sensibility of events. And one of my clients was a sports marketing agency. And I remember getting him on the front page of the Wall Street Journal. Hal Lancaster was a fantastic reporter back then. And I got a client, a guy named Del Wilbur, on the cover. And he called me and said, I want you to come work for me. And I said, okay. I moved to DC and I started in sports marketing. I kind of just took a path, whatever was curious and opportunistic next, that's what I did. And I kind of followed the way the world worked. You really did. It's amazing. And one of the things that you're you're credited for is really you're a pioneer and someone who understood the power of the internet kind of before a lot of people did. So you actually helped build one of the first internet-based online networks. Yeah, I'm going to totally date myself, but I had this extraordinary opportunity. After I had my daughter, I was fascinated with the internet. And it was still, there were no browsers. This is dial-up. It was really No, dial-up was the worst. It was the worst, but it felt really like you were connecting to an alien world. <laughs> and I was so curious that I liked spending time with people that were really tech, geeky, nerdy. And I spoke their language. I don't know why, but I was able to understand the story. And it led me to um, work for Kathleen Kennedy, who at the time had just left Amblin and Steven Spielberg. And I realized after about a year, I did not want to make movies, which is very unusual in LA. And what I did want to do was do all this cool digital world. And I had a unique opportunity to open an LA office for Prodigy, which was at the time... <laughs> pre-AOL, the biggest online network. And so I opened an LA office for Podigy and we, as a team, took the network online because do you remember you used to get those 30 or 35 hours for free? Yes. And so part of- Now I date myself. Yeah, now, well, and there were chat rooms. <laughs> yeah, Chat rooms were good. You know, new yeah. is old again and old is new again. So part of my job for Prodigy was to go around Hollywood, whatever that means, I'm doing air quotes, and explain what the online world was. And the first- sort of aha was celebrity chats. And I went to one of the first CES events and we were looking at doing streaming video. Now I can say this as an adult. So actually the porn industry was farther ahead. And I had this crazy meeting in a tour bus sitting on the floor of CES with an adult film company that figured out streaming. And if they could do it with adult stars, we could do it with celebrities. It was really janky, but we purchased the license to do streaming, live streaming. And I was working with the talent agencies and managers to bring celebrities on. That was early, early. And then had the really unique opportunity to go work for Microsoft. And that was in the early 90s. And that was a game changer for me. So what you did at Microsoft, I mean, you essentially played matchmaker between Microsoft and Hollywood. Yes, in a early kind of a way, because that was the early romance between well, it wasn't really Silicon Valley because they were Seattle, but it was the early romance of Hollywood and technology, early, early. And those days I had to have a tech partner to explain what was going on. A translator. I, I, it was a translator because the technology was not easy. And I had this amazing guy named Bruce Ryan that would travel with me. And we had channels. So MSN started, this was back in the day, Baba Jean was running this network. He's still at Microsoft. He left and came back. And we were the production group that was like developing content and there were five channels and it was still in the alignment of a TV network. And those were the exploding days of digital Babylon in LA. And I had no mistake. I was, you know, spending money. So I was everybody's best friend for a little while. Well, you had a lot of money. <laughs> a lot. Like, can we talk about how much money? I think it's been in the press. You had like 300 or $400 million over the course of a couple of years. It was a lot of money. <laughs> So wait, so you basically, 
Jamie goes to Hollywood with $300 million and is everyone's best friend. Not quite, but I was everyone's best friend. You were the belle of the ball, for sure. It was fun. It was like the uh, Johnny Bravo episode. It's a Brady Bunch analogy where Greg Brady gets to be Johnny Bravo. And he realizes his life lesson is it's not about him being Greg Brady. He fit the suit. So I had no illusions that I was special. But I really did meet some fascinating people because in those days in digital, there wasn't money in it. This is like, what, 96? Yeah, 95, 96. Yeah. There was, that was money in But that's it. a lot of money in 95, 96. Well, yes, but it was an experiment. But, you know, people at Microsoft were still early Microsoft people. It was the original, like, my friend was employee number 822 kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And actually, this is an aside, but I'll never forget, when you started working at Microsoft in those days, you had to take a class called How to Manage a Millionaire. You no, no, no. Seriously? Seriously. That's and, what it was called? Yep. And it was early because people were just vesting in those days. And you'd get an email that was FY. IFV. So you could say somebody that's technically junior to you in rank, whatever that means these days. And it was, fuck you, I'm fully vested, meaning that was like the ultimate fuck you. How do you manage somebody? So that was the kind of time where it was. Wow. But people were still staying in cheap hotels. There was an ethos at Microsoft. You know, Bill Gates was still flying commercial. Those were way back in the days. And it was a different world. It was pre-browser wars. Wait, do you remember any of the lessons of how to manage a millionaire? Like, what did they tell you to do? You had to find out what was important to them and really speak to their creative or technical dreams. Because even though they made money, they still were in it to build something different. And they really helped us figure out how do you go deeper? And it's not about a force of will. Like, this is a management thing. It's like, what does this mean for you? And then how does this help build this incredible company? Because Microsoft is like it is now. Back in those days, there hadn't been a Google there hadn't been anything like that. It was a, a unique place. It was an oasis, lots of unicorns. And while I was there, I saw a lot of people started to come to Microsoft. It was a beacon in the great Northwest. Nobody was living in Seattle then. It was before Amazon was even an idea, but real networks. Mark Cuban had just started doing some stuff. It was early, really early. And I felt grateful to be part of that. So I would commit up to Seattle I was single in those days. I had just gotten divorced. I was a single mom and I got fixed up on some hilarious dates. Inevitably, I'd go to someone's house who picked their head up one day, realized they had a lot of money, bought a huge house, and there was nothing but a black leather couch and a lot of stereo equipment. (laughs) Different days, different days. So I, I was spending money and I realized at Microsoft that that's a liability. I quickly pivoted and moved into biz dev where I was starting to make money for Microsoft. And I had this incredible opportunity. I met Rich Barton, who's the founder of Expedia. And he also did Zillow. He's an incredible, innovative unicorn. Talk about a unicorn. And I started working with the Expedia team. And I had this epiphany of like, wait a second, travel, the internet. And I had some contacts in Vegas. And I said, wait a second, let's go to Vegas and start dealing with travel. And I had this incredible opportunity to work with Steve Wynn. We did the first, you're going to laugh, first online sweepstakes and email. It was for the Mirage. They hadn't even built the Bellagio yet. And we opened up that territory. I had a great team and it led to all kinds of amazing, crazy experiences. And then Expedia spun out of Microsoft and went public. And I, they said, you can stay with Expedia or you go back to Microsoft. And I went with Expedia. So that was a crazy journey. And then that was like a different leg. It was our 90 degree angle. You've had so much experience building teams and building infrastructure from scratch. Going where nobody has been before. I always yes. say I've, I've made like up my astronaut. job. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, an, I'm an astronaut. 
Or I, I would have been a pioneer woman, except I wouldn't have been good because I don't like the clothes. I need all the comforts. But oh, yes, I'm I a pioneer. Relate. I can relate. But it's interesting because then I feel like, okay, you did that travel tech thing. But then, you know, this interesting marriage between tech and Hollywood keeps on coming back because then at some point you become chief strategy officer of CAA, which yeah, is literally, I mean, I think the culmination of all that previous experience in a way. Another unique opportunity. I had actually stopped working. I got remarried, had a kid. And for anybody that's out there that's a mom or that's stepped out of the workforce, it's scary. Yeah. And 2008 happened and I couldn't sit on the bench anymore. And I had a really good friend, Joe Kessler, who invited me to come help him at a company at CAA called the Intelligence Group that Jane Buckingham had started. And it was really kind of scary. I'd done a little bit of consulting, but I was off the bench after four years. And jumped in and it was at a time when companies were trying to figure out this idea of what are millennials and then even Gen Z, which at this time sounds quaint, but in those days it was still kind of pre-internet where people didn't have access to the insights about what the difference was. And I'm a hardcore Gen X. I was raised by wolves. (laughs) (laughs) There were were no seatbelts or sunblock. It was- Wow. Right? When we graduated college, I would rather live on the streets than move home with my parents. So I did. I think I lived on the streets in New York. And I got to put all of that into a story at CA and work with the most amazing people and really help partner with companies like Microsoft. They were my client. You can't, once you're in the Microsoft vortex, you never get out. They're still my client in many ways. Um, and I got to work with Microsoft or Victoria's Secret at the time and really help people who were curious kind of figure out through data. I always say I turn data and stats into insights and stories with a lot of help from my friends and really help them figure out not just what's on the surface, but go below. And at CAA, you walk into that building and it's like Las Vegas. You walk in and and it felt like my Vegas days. You never know what's going to happen. And I was so curious. And if you're flexible and can just roll with it, you can connect the dots. And I think that's maybe my superpower is I'm a nonlinear thinker but I can back it up with data. And I had a chance to really be curious and some really great friends. A friend of mine, Christian Carino, was really key in helping me build my relationships around that network. And I'm very grateful to him because he took a chance. He was spectacular and took me on some crazy meetings, which I can't really talk about because you're not allowed to, but really great opportunities to meet people who are curious, artists, you know, who doesn't want to spend time with artists and help them build their craft. So in a way, I'm kind of an idea agent. I love that. So I'm just curious, when you were out for four years, you know, having your kid, did you stay in contact with your network? Were you a little bit like, oh, I need to keep in touch with people because eventually I'm going to want to go back? Or did you really check out? I checked out. I really did. That freaks me out. It freaked me out. And it freaked me out in 2008, especially now with what's going on right now. Sure. It's kind of an interesting thing. I had friends, of course, that were in it, but I really tried to be the stay-at-home working mom until a friend of mine, Kimberly Brooks, said to me, you know, you're like a parked Ferrari and you're really boring. You got to get out of the garage. And I realized that I was not meant to be on the bench. Interesting. So, But I have a a soft spot in my heart for working moms. And I was lucky. I had a great, I have (laughs) a great husband of almost 20 years and a family that supports me and a great infrastructure, but it wasn't easy. I mean, my PowerPoint skills, I don't think they still ever came back. You know, at Microsoft, <laughs> you didn't do your own PowerPoint for a while. The people that invented PowerPoint came in and did your decks for you. Wow. So I had to, you know, it was an upskilling, but I had to reconnect with my network. And I was lucky because people were very kind. 
And I had a different last name. So that was awkward. I went from my maiden name to my first married name, which was Fragan. And then I went to good friend. And that was a whole trip. People were like, wait, who are you? And that was a whole explanation. But people were really kind. You just put a branding deck together about that. You'll be fine. There you go. So like we said, you really have had to build a lot of things from scratch and in that building teams. What do you look for in people that you hire? This is a question that I always ask other people. So I want to hear what you have to say as well. Curiosity is a big thing. And one of the things that I look for when somebody comes in to meet me is, are they going to ask questions that actually they're really curious about? Or are they asking like the, what inspired you bullshit questions that don't mean anything? Or like, what's a day like here? What's my day to day? I hate when people ask that. I don't like that either. And I ask them what they read and I ask them what has surprised them. And I ask them who they have talked to recently that they learned something from. And you get a lot of great answers that way. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't go necessarily by the vibe because I really believe in hiring people that compliment you. I'm a crazy type A and I've learned that I need to surround myself with really smart people who are more process oriented. Mm-hmm. So you can't go by your vibe or your gut of like what feels comfortable because then I'd hire a bunch of type A's and that wouldn't be good. I hire people that help build out the team and see things in a different way. And I think that's really been the strength is making sure that you have people that are across the whole spectrum Mm -hmm. and that's diversity and that's diversity of gender. It's diversity of ethnicity and it's diversity of mentality. Actually now I'm involved. I'll just throw this out there. I'm involved with an organization called creative spirit. My voice is a little rough because we had our first gala last night. Laurel Rossi helped start this. It's with the ad club of New York and it's helping people with intellectual disabilities find full-time meaningful employment and it's magic. So I think building a team in the modern lesson today is you need good ideas to come from everywhere. And I think the way the world has worked, we moved from a hierarchical organizational Mm -hmm. structure. We're not in a military, not in the industrial revolution. It's not a pyramid. It's not top down. It's flat. It's networked. And so you need to hire a team that's out there that knows things that you don't know. And I really love being around people that know things I don't know. And I think as I've gotten older, being comfortable with not knowing something and saying, I don't know anything about that. You tell me. Like esports. The most fascinating area, I like going to esports tournaments, and that's because people I'm around are into it. And I think I'm usually the oldest one that goes to these esports tournaments. And it's so fun to be a fish out of water. But I think you have to really be open to not knowing things and being open to people that can teach you. I totally agree. One of the core things that I look for when I'm hiring people or when I used to hire people is really energy level. Because I think certainly in fashion, like it doesn't stop. And certainly in your business too, it doesn't stop. So I always wanted to see like, can they keep up with how fast this is going to go And the ability to pivot really quickly because people change their minds all the time. Because, you know, a lot of times, especially like younger generation, and you're the expert on this for sure, and we're going to get into that. It's like, but I did the work already. Like I did that thing. And you're like, right, but now we're changing it. And you have to be okay working in an organization where things change all the time and the direction changes all the time. And you have to be able to be nimble. Being nimble, but I'll tell you something. I'm not a millennial basher. 
I'm not either. I know. I think it's interesting because I don't. I just want to make sure in the podcast universe, people don't take us as being millennial bachelors. Here, the thing that's so fascinating that the way they grew up, which is so different, and I really think you have to think about this in terms of being pivoted. Mm-hmm. You know, that generation, there's so many of them, it was really hard because they needed to figure out how they could be their most excellent selves under a microscope. And they were really task-oriented because they had to go to school and get A's and talk about being overachievers. So when they come into the workplace, they've got one training and then they're stuck with these Gen X bosses who are all about efficiency and get it done and pivot. And it's a bit of a shift. And once they understand the why behind why you want them to shift, Mm -hmm. It's a much better thing. It's a much better mode. I do think some people process quicker than others. I'm much more of an instinctual decision maker, as I would think you are. I am. And I realize that not everybody processes that way. And actually, one of the things I've learned in working is I process probably too quickly. And when I learned that, I really helped my marriage. I know we're kind of all over the place because my husband is a really methodical, fantastic man. And he's a very methodical, thinks through every detail. I don't do that. I don't either. And when I'll say, like, where do you want to go to dinner? And he'll tell me, I go, okay, great, decision made. And then he's still thinking about it. And I used to get mad. Now I don't get mad. And I let him have his <clears> moment. But I think that's age comes from wisdom. I wrote an article for the New York Post on the millennial Gen X boss relationship. And I can't remember the title, but it was essentially that the reason why Gen Xers can't work with millennials is because they don't know how to lead millennials. Because my team, throughout all my career, I've had the most amazingly passionate, just brilliant people working with me. And then I've gone into other companies and I see management not know how to play in that sandbox. And I think a lot of it comes from the lack of understanding from the top down. A hundred percent. That's maybe a bit of a segue here, but I think there's a lot of fear out there. I think millennials generally come into the workplace very optimistic. Now they're grownups. It's not like they're coming to the workplace. You've got Gen Z. But I think most people who are in senior management right now anywhere, could be startup, could be corporate. There's a lot of fear. You're right. And I think that when you're in a fear-based, you're in your lizard brain, not in your creative, expansive brain. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's challenging in the workplace right now because we're moving. It's a balance of profit versus revenue. But am I going to get fired? Mm-hmm. Is the company going to shut down? And I think with younger people, they're so naturally in that flow. It's hard for us grizzled you know, senior executives who've seen and done it all and have had things fall apart that because we're five steps ahead thinking about all the contingencies – Sometimes it's good to just sit and marinate in that creativity. Yeah, that's true. Do you remember when you invited me to go to Own the Room? Of course I do. So Own the Room, what do you call it? It's like a public speaking... Boot camp. Boot camp, right. Well, hoop turf. So Jamie invited me. She had a, a golden ticket. So I was her golden ticket date. One of the things we learned that day, I mean, you probably already knew it, but is how to do those five-minute meetings. Did you... Do those five-minute meetings, like, in your career? Sometimes. More 20-minute. Just because <laughs> Outlook defaults to 30, I've always made them 20. If I can make it a 10-minute meeting, I do. I like to put the objective of the meeting on a wall. And you might figure it out in five minutes. You might figure it out in 20 minutes. It might take an hour as opposed to just filling the time. Efficiency is pretty key. I'm a little overly efficient. But Own the Room was great because it helped you figure out how to really tell a story and not be afraid Fears, I think fear is a really interesting theme 
in everybody's career. But when you go to a room or a presentation, nobody wants you to fail. People are not rooting for you to fall on your face. And I've done that. I've had terrible presentations where I second guess myself. Really? Oh my God. Every time I've had some where they're really doozies. I'm a little nicer to myself now, but yeah, perfectionist. I've walked out. I had a presentation a couple of years ago at CAA. I came back for one of their retreats and I did a presentation. I slunk off there. I felt like it was an incredible failure. And I got in my car and I drove away immediately. I couldn't even talk to anybody. I don't, I don't know what it was. I just never felt like I got into my flow. Who knows? Yeah, you, you live and learn, but you live to fight another day. Yes, absolutely. And I also think like, I'm sure that was just in your head more than how people judge the presentation because I'm sure you prepared. Preparation, it doesn't matter. I don't know. We're so hard on ourselves. <clears throat> I'm trying to be less hard on myself these days. It was, Good. And Bill Hook Trippett in the room would say that's not productive. <laughs> <laughs> it's not productive for anybody. I mean, when, when you see your kids, right, would you ever be as mean to them as you are to yourself? Never. That voice in your head is the worst you're, I'm like thinking, I'm like, what I, I don't know, maybe. <laughs> Never. Come on. You're, you're none of us no. are. I, you know what? I would say this though. I do crack the whip on performance because I feel like you have to show up as your best self, like whatever you're doing. So when I see any sign of like, well, I'm just going to do this just to get it done. It's like, no, you have to bring your best self to that project because that's going to set you up for your next project. And I feel like these are formative years. You know, Jonathan's 15, Sabrina's 12. And like their job is to be a student. That's their job. So performing well in that, I just think like, I just want them to have really good work ethic. So work ethic versus achievement. And I don't know that I really understand the difference because you can work really hard and not necessarily get the golden ticket or not necessarily get the prize. Mm -hmm. And it should be for the sake of working hard because you did everything that you could do and you don't second guess yourself. That's exactly right. But I think it gets twisted up in, did I get the result that I wanted? And that's the separation I think really makes things a little bit easier in life. When you show up, do your best, you did your best for what you could do as opposed to what you perceive the outside world expecting you. And I think that's that treadmill that I, I think I'm kind of off, not completely, but I'm trying to unlearn it. Yeah. I mean, listen, my son just had to apply to high school. You know, in New York City, it's like terrible. It's terrible. And there's standardized tests. And my biggest thing was like, I don't care what your score is. I don't care what schools you get into. I want to know the day we get that score back, you have no regrets that you should have studied more. If you can study in advance and do the best that you can and literally have zero regrets, no matter what the score is, then you've done the job you should do. And that's all the goal was, is to just not have, God, should I have played video games less that day? Whatever. Because nothing is worse than thinking like, oh, God, I should have done that. Should is a word that we should take out of the dictionary. Let's call no Merriam-Webster. There's no or should. And I heard something interesting. It's easier to do something 100% or 0%. It's where you get in the middle is when you get stuck. <laughs> I believe that. So... I was at a Women in the Workplace panel this week for University of Maryland alumni. One of the things that came up from some people in the audience was, you know, and obviously they're more junior in their careers at this point, like, oh, my boss takes my ideas and presents them as his own or her own. What is your advice to people that experience that? You cannot control other people. I think that's one of the biggest lessons I've really 
taken to heart. And it sounded like words for a long time, but when you actually listen to it and you think, oh, I can, I'm going to do my best. Now that doesn't mean that you have to continue to let them take your ideas or continually let people treat you badly, but you cannot make them different. You can only change how you approach it. Mm-hmm. So you could say to them really honestly, this is an idea that I'm really passionate about. I'd love to talk to you about how we're going to present it. Make your case known. You can't control how they're going to react to it. I think that's different. Don't be invisible. Make your desires known. And if they don't treat you the way you deserve to be treated, you can start to temper that and look at them as, why are they doing that? Are they scared? And I think sometimes when you realize how afraid- We're back to fear. Or back to fear or- nervous, or maybe they didn't even think about it. Maybe it wasn't about you and your idea. Maybe they just didn't realize they didn't give you credit. You just don't know. We all Mm -hmm. tell each other stories. It's true. And I think in the workplace, we tend to tell ourselves the absolute worst story. Most of the time we could be right because your gut's usually right. And if you have a bad boss, you have a bad boss, but it doesn't mean that it's perpetual and it doesn't mean you can't change how you manage it or how you react to it. And that's helpful because you do have some control about that. I think that's great advice. So from my standpoint, you've had a career of win after win. I just feel like you've gone from success to success. And I'm sure along the way, there have been challenges that you faced. When you think back on your career, what was something that you really had to like work on and overcome? And how did you tackle it? Writing. Really? I Remember very early on, I did not have a lot of confidence in my ability as a writer. And I was working for a very corporate PR firm at the time. And my boss at the time, Joe Kessler, gave me an assignment. I had to write an article, a bylined article for Ernst & Young. It was Ernst & Young then. And Ernst & Young or Ernst & Winnie, whatever. It was one of the big eight accounting firms back in the day. It was on risk management insurance. And I had to write an article on captive insurance companies. I'm in my 20s. I had no idea. And I cried and I fidrated. And there's no internet. And I had this epiphany. He, Joe just made me keep going back and doing it. And I realized it was all about hard work and knowing the subject matter. And I learned a really important lesson about tenacity. Mm-hmm. And even if you're scared or uncomfortable, um, I don't think I would have put it into my mind in those days the same way I do now. But the voice in my head that was telling me, you can't do this. What do you know about risk management or captive insurance companies? I didn't, but I learned and I pushed through it and I just did whatever I could. And it worked out. I don't know. It's the best article, but I can tell you a lot now. (laughs) But you did it. But I did it and I faced my fears. So I used to dive in high school and I really have this visual of me getting up on the diving board. I was a terrible diver, many concussions. (gasps) Finally, they took me and put me on the swim team. But I hit my head quite a few times, but that feeling of... Maybe that's my problem. (laughs) That feeling of getting out on the diving board and just throwing a dive, there's something about it with business. You just have to do it. And I think the illusion that everyone else is walking around confident, everyone's scared. Everyone, you know, when somebody gave me this great piece of advice, because I, again, I've been ambitious. And if you're an ambitious person or you're a curious person, you're always trying to do the next thing in a good way. And that means that you're doing something you haven't done before. Well, of course you're going to be uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. If you're comfortable, you've done it before and that gets boring. So you're always on a high wire. You're always trying to figure out something else. And I think humility and asking questions and saying, I don't know this, but this is what I'm thinking. Am I right? Is this wrong? And being wrong and being okay with saying, I don't know something is a great lesson. So 
I didn't feel like I could write. I learned how to have tenacity. And I think I got comfortable with telling people, I don't know how to do this, but I'm, I'm going to figure it out. I think you just described me as far as someone who's always on to the next thing. I was like, that sounds like somebody I know. But there's so much to do. I love connecting the dots. So Me right? too. Me too. And seeing things that maybe don't necessarily go together. I guess it's like a friend of mine, Carrie Estes Lights, says to me all the time, it's like peanut butter and chocolate. Who thought of that? So in the business world, like right now I'm working with, I'm really excited. I'm working with this kid tech company called Super Awesome. Just the name alone. Who doesn't want to work with them as a consultant? And they're a kid tech company that's helping brands be able to be COPA compliant, GDPR, K compliant. And I'm also working with a company called Anzu, and they're an in-game advertising company. And I put the two founders together, random. And there's a little serendipity. I'm hoping they're going to work together, but they just felt right to me. Mm -hmm. And I think finding those opportunities to connect the dots, I'll probably put tubular in there somewhere. It's the idea of if you follow your heart and you're curious and you see where people are making contributions and where you can actually add something as opposed to chasing, I think that's what's driving me right now and being open to learning about esports. So I go back to that a lot because I think it's such an interesting area that is not what people expect. So it's the culmination of everything. First of all, have you been to an esports tournament? Okay, so you're talking to someone who can't throw a ball or is interested in throwing a ball. So I'm literally right now listening to you and I'm like, I will- We're going. We're, we're going to go. <laughs> I went to a Call of Duty tournament. That's Activision's game in LA this summer. And it's so fun. It's really fun. And gamers are not people sitting in their mother's basement, you know, on a Barca lounger. Everybody plays games. One in three people on the planet plays games. It's the great unifier. Most people now are aware of Fortnite. I play words with friends. That's a game. Yeah. And it's a connection. It's a social behavior. Yeah, I only play with three people. I bet you're very competitive. I'm not great at it, to be honest. But you do it. I do it because I'm like, wow, I'm really not great at this. I need to do it more because I think I only know like 10 words. <laughs> it's like, But it's fun. Bah. But it's a social experience. You know, that's what gaming is. It's actually it's so funny. It's a great way to keep in touch with people that you really don't have a reason to speak to for business. And I think this is what's happening right now, especially where we're all kind of hunkered down in our own home bunkers. The virtual world is alive. And it does not mean that you're isolating. It's a way to connect across the world, people that share passions. And it gives you the ability to do things that you couldn't otherwise do. And... I think we're going to see more of that. So, but the way I'm looking at esports and gaming is it's a 3D palette for creativity. The things you can do with brands and marketing, the technology now where you could render in real time. I know I'm going off on a geek tangent, but no, we're going to get into your geek stuff right now. It's actually pretty great. So did you see what VML did with Wendy's and Fortnite? This mm-hmm. is my favorite campaign. Anyone that's listening, if you haven't seen this, go Google. Wendy's and Fortnite. And it's a great campaign where they created a character because it's hard to integrate with Fortnite. It's expensive and it's a big commitment. And they created a very authentic integration that sparked a lot of support because they knew the game. It's like, I always say there's three things you need to do. You need to know your audience, you need to speak their language, and you need to understand their world. And Wendy's killed it. So they created a character that went around and was killing so they don't freeze their meat there were meat freezers in the game. And this character went around for nine hours and killed all the meat freezers and people got into it. And then Fortnite, being responsive, took out all the meat freezers. And it created this 
wave of awareness. You can't buy that. You just can't buy that. So it was knowing the audience and really speaking their language and figuring out a way that made sense and added value. And that's the world we're in right now. I love that. And I also, going back to what you said earlier, I love putting two things together that wouldn't necessarily be together. So I'm all for that. And you are a trend spotter. So you actively think about like how the consumer is thinking, acting, shopping. Where do you get this crystal ball from? Like, is this just a gut intuitive thing for you? I wish it was. It really, it isn't. It's my gut is being open. I read and I put myself in places where I'm around people that are so different. I read the weirdest science things. My friends laugh on the weekends. I send them articles from like crazy academic publications. And I like to read and explore things that are nonlinear. Um, you might get an inspiration. And once you kind of see something, there's a zeitgeist to it. Mm-hmm. And then you see it everywhere. And so I think my inspiration comes from just a diversity of access, young, old, global. I travel a lot. I see things. But when I feel it in my gut, that's when I know I'm onto something. So right now, for example, this is, you know, it's, maybe it's not good, but I was talking to some people at NPD a couple weeks ago and I was asking them like, what's working in the economy? Well, I was, okay. I was just going to ask you that. Oh, there Perfect. you go. And I think what we're seeing is kind of similar to post 2008 and post 9-11. People are hunkering down and they're looking for these oasis moments with their families of real connectivity and peace and light. And especially people with young kids, there's a real opportunity. So for example, food delivery is killing it and ghost kitchens. And maybe that's not news, but if you look at that and you combine that with streaming and you combine that with the food home kit delivery services, which are still trying to figure it out, but they're still, they're still in the game. You're seeing this shift to people really trying to make their home an oasis. I think we're going to see a big wave again of Home Depot, crafts, playing games, and wanting to connect with the outside world in a way that's positive, Mm -hmm. even if it's for a moment. And I think that's something that we're going to see a lot of over the next couple months. And I'm going to take it as a good way. So that's a perfect segue because you were quoted in Elle magazine as saying that it used to be, you know, when the internet sort of started and subsequent years that it was this massive, like you had to be everywhere. You had to sign up for every email, every social platform. You had to be on all the time. And now it's not about FOMO, right? You say it's about the joy of moving on. So where do you think it's important to be now as a brand or an individual? I love that question. I think for both. When you meet somebody, if I met you on the street or saw your fantastic outfit and I walked up to you and I said, oh my God, what's your email? (laughs) You would look at me like I'm a freak, but that's what brands do. So thinking about things in a very human, personal quality. But if I said to you as a brand, wow, your shoes are baller. You talk to me, you might not, but you'd probably say, oh, they're so-and-so. Exactly. And I think finding our humanity is so key. I don't call people consumers. They're people. And understanding sort of in an engineering capacity, engineers are driving a lot of innovation and they're brilliant and they're fabulous. And they're in the zeitgeist in a way that, and the culture that is extraordinary. I think 
what is important to translate to the humanity of the world is just because you can come up with some new app or some new feature doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to help somebody do something better or faster. And we used to have this phrase, I like to talk about made for the medium. In my early days at Microsoft, people, we would talk about content. And it was always like, we're going to put a soap opera on the internet, or we're going to put a aliens are taking over the world or a corporation's taking over the world. And it was kind of like, well, why is this better online? Right. And it's the same thing in the world today. Why would I do that with a piece of engineering or an app or technology when I can actually do something much more simply? I mean, I kind of miss Rolodexes. I'll just out myself there. <laughs> but made for the medium in this new world is I'm a human being. What? makes my life better, faster, more efficient. So it's also this idea that I don't need everything. I just don't want to settle for average. Everybody walking around has 24-7 access to the best. So I'm going to let cream rise to the top. It's kind of like the Marie Kondo of life. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Whatever is going to give me joy, you know it. You feel it. And so if you get that that hit of something that this is going to help or you're so excited that I'm going to say to Elisa, check this out. This is my new favorite app or book or whatever it might be. That's the stuff that you pay attention to. Mm -hmm. The ephemeral stuff that floats by, I don't know, it's going to come and go. And that's hard for a brand. But really, it's about, from a human perspective, think about it. What's it like to go through a drive through What's it like to walk into a store? What is it like to have to try to make a goddamn decision? There's too many choices. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm an Amazon freak, just like everybody else. Hard to make a decision. Too many choices. It's that paradox of choice. Oh, my God. Speaking of which, I had to buy bath mats, and I wanted, like, <laughs> antibacterial fast drying, right? Shouldn't be that hard to get. So I order them. They come from China. The whole box is in Chinese. I've never seen that before. Like, actually, like... These belong in China. They shouldn't even be here. They're stone. They're a piece of stone. Well, that's antibacterial. That's I mean, for sure antibacterial. You, it's like insane. That's hilarious. Well, that's an interesting thing, though. So the experience, and I think this is a really good concrete example of- Literally concrete. Literally concrete <laughs> of being human. When you get a package, there's an experience. We had a client when I was at Wonderman, now Wonderman Thompson, that- was a design-oriented company. And it was a really expensive item that was high design. And what we found from the human part was when people opened up the box, it didn't read high design Apple. It read brown box, inexpensive, and the instructions were stressful. And we actually put cardiac monitors on people and they were getting really stressed out. Think when you get your cable box. Think when you get a new gadget. Oh my God, think about Ikea. It's stressful. And that's the kind of thing that you may not think about as an engineer, but when you're thinking from a human as a divining rod, you're going to go through the process yourself and open up that box. First of all, opening a box is impossible. <laughs> Getting the box, I can't, I'm a, a non-sequential thinker. I cannot put things together. It's too hard for me. I get stressed out with the instructions. So then I'm going to go to YouTube and look for the instructions. Think about that whole journey. And you can make a fan, an immediate fan, if you think about that. I think that's part of the genius of Apple. You open the box, the and made in California, you know, it's easy. So think about that. You got the Chinese, I mean, that's Amazon, so that's your fault because you were, you know, ordering from someplace that you didn't know. But I think in a time now where brands, we know our brands that we love, 
make it easy for me. Think about what it's like for me and have some consideration. You wouldn't go to somebody's house and have the most complicated recipe and give that to somebody. I mean, maybe people do, but simplicity is a gift. It's a luxury as well. So before we started recording, you said you're not chasing things anymore. You're picking your spots. Yeah. Tell us about that. I think I've learned that my energy is one of my great commodities. And I used to feel like I had to give it away and prove that I could be valuable. And that's a more of a grown-up tack. I think I've learned that over the years and I really cemented it at Hoffman. There's a cement thing. I think cement is a theme today. Cement and fear. Um, cement and fear. But I don't feel like I have to prove anything. And I think in that effort, it chased people away because you were selling. And I think my natural DNA as a salesperson was scary. So now what I'm really trying to be conscious of doing is observing and picking my spots where I can actually add value. And I was listening to Ross Martin's podcast with you, which made me cry, which was really it incredible. Made me, it was very emotional to be there listening to him. And the idea of listening is a really important theme because when you're younger and you're trying to make your mark, trying to leave your mark, you tend to talk more than you listen. Less is more. So I'm listening and where I can add something, I add it. But I've gotten so much more value of listening. So I'm not chasing as much and it's conserving my energy and it's a great cycle. And I am hearing more things than I might have. And I'm encouraging people with me to not let me run over them a bit more. They used to call me Scary Spice. That's a, I have, I had two nicknames in my life. My maiden name was Mincer and they used to call me as a kid, Doberman Mincer. That was probably not good. And then <laughs> my friends behind my back used to call me Scary Spice. So I don't think I'm Doberman Mincer or Scary Spice anymore. I don't know what my third incarnation is, but a kinder, gentler, more patient listener is my goal. And to, to just add value where I can add value and not feel the need to jump in and be P.T. Barnum. So it's so interesting. So you and Ross need to like have this conversation because you're now both we do. Yeah, in the same place. But I also think that's a product of how accomplished you both are in your careers because you have those reputations already as far as accomplishment and sort of what you have built over the course of time. So you kind of don't have to prove yourself anymore. Whereas people who are sort of earlier on in their journeys, they haven't done those things yet. I don't know if it's the things or the feeling. I've been with some really incredible people in their 20s and early 30s who have a really strong sense of themselves who still don't need to prove themselves because they're so confident in their subject matter or what they're passionate about. And maybe it's I just learned to listen. I don't know in this world, everybody's got an accomplishment. You can make it up and put it on the internet and it's just stuff. And I think now it's really about what you know and what you know and how you can put things into context. I'm a big fan of context. So I'm giving this presentation if it happens next week in LA for a ad ops conference, which I love. And I'm trying to put things into context because there's a lot of fear and being able to add context through experience is really what you get through years. The passion and the depth of knowledge that you get when you're first starting out, because you're not contaminated by what other people have made you think or second guess yourself. So maybe it's a little bit of that. I, I don't think anybody should have to ever prove themselves. 
You come into this world, you have a passion, and that's what put you in the room. If you know your shit, that should be enough. And competition and the proving yourself gets you off your game. I wish I'd known that earlier. Yeah, I mean, I certainly didn't know that earlier. No, how could you? But also as women, we felt much more obliged to proof and to overcompensate and to be the biggest voice in the room. And I don't know that we need to anymore. And I'm really optimistic about that. I'm really optimistic about a lot of things. I see these young women that blow me away with their knowledge and confidence and their access. And I learn from them and kind of circling back. My mentors are my partners in crime, the people that are passionate about things that I don't know about and are willing to take me on that journey. But you've worked at a lot of male-dominated companies, and I'm sure many times you've been the only woman in the room. How do you get your voice heard? There is still a boys' club in a lot of these businesses. And actually, in the panel I spoke about previously, like that is a concern for a lot of women where they either can't get a word in edgewise, or you can see like a lawyer who works at NBC was saying to me, or saying to the group rather, you know, when she first started, she was with her white male partner, right? And the client would only direct the conversation to him, like literally would not look at her. But her partner was the exact leader you need. Anytime the client asked a question, he would look at her, he would turn to her and say, well, what do you think? And bringing people into the conversation. And I think a great leader these days That has to be a priority to bring people into the conversation, especially people of color, because they sit back more silent too, because it's not comfortable a lot of times. No, it's not comfortable. And maybe the way to look at it is that there are a lot of leaders who are from a previous generation who are really willing to bring people into the conversation, but they're just not sure how to do it because it's not natural to them. It wasn't something that was taught. Mm -hmm. It's not something that they were aware of. And they're willing to do it if they see it modeled. I have great hope for, I have a 17-year-old son. I have great hope for that generation because they're living it and they're modeling it. And it's not something that is external. It's part of how they're growing up. So I hope that in companies and the brilliant HR and culture keepers in these corporations or startups are encouraging people to ask questions and to really help their partners in crime. Like that example of the leader. I don't know. Did somebody teach him to do that? Was that in his spirit? So now this client had a different experience and pay it forward. And I'm not Pollyanna. I mean, I have a loud voice. I think it got louder because I needed to be heard. And I think that was part of why I worked so hard to be seen, to have a voice. But I have to believe there's more and more people in the pipeline And as I walk into rooms, it's changing. Where I really love is that a classic example in the Obama administration where the women in the room really supported each other. And that's key. You have to really help out someone of color, a woman, someone with an intellectual disability, because at the end of the day, it's good for the company. And if there's any reason of why, it's not just because it's the right thing to do, because of course it is. Let's just be, you know, I'm all about commerce at the end of the day, I'm a revenue, I'm a Gen X, I want to make money. It's good for business. Mm -hmm. There's nothing better for a business than having a lot of opinions, having strong ideas, and having people willing to take a chance. If you have that opportunity, your company will thrive. 
And there's a ton of data about that. If you have a company, and we've all been in those clients where people are afraid to say what they think. Mm -hmm. There's only one type of person in the room, you know, older white men or someone from a certain geography or whatever it might be. It's boring Mm -hmm. and it's not as productive and it's not as successful. So if you want to have a robust business, big or small, you have to have a room filled with people that are willing to state how they feel and not be afraid. And that takes leadership where you're allowed to say something that might be controversial. And in this day and age, that takes balls. It's true. It really is true. But that's the other thing. It's like if you are constantly in meetings and you're invisible, as you said before, no one's going to picture you in a more senior role because they don't hear from you. You know, people are afraid to express ideas because they might not be adopted, but it doesn't matter if the idea is adopted. It matters that you express that you had it. That's the idea about results. What we were talking about with your mm-hmm. kids, show up mm-hmm. and you can't control what other people are thinking. You're going to say something as long as it's of value because we've all been in those meetings and there's the talkers because they have to hear their own voice. Oh yes. Or there's the person that just is going to say something because they realize that they feel like they need to say something. Pick your spots, know your stuff And then when you're in that room and you really know in your gut, like when you know in your gut that you should say something, just say it. That's your power alley. Where you get in trouble is when you're saying it because you think you should say it as opposed to you are really contributing something. And that's being that results focused. Then you never go wrong. I've never gone wrong when I've listened to my gut. I've only gone wrong when I have not listened to my gut. And that's my big lesson is uh, in my second half of my life too. So listen to your gut. I agree. What's next on your bucket list? I'm taking an improv comedy class. That's always been on my bucket list. I'm going to take that. That is is a recommendation. You need no help in public speaking, but that is one of the uh, recommendations for how to be a great public speaker. Well, it's about play. Being a public speaker, I don't know. It sounds like you've gone to some special program in a school, but it's more about enjoying the audience and, and thinking about what's good for them. For me my bucket list, I'll revise it. My next half is all about play and being able to be myself. I like to say crazy things. I always like to say my family, I like to say my funny things, my funny things and being able to be authentically funny and make other people laugh and feel something. That's my biggest joy. And I didn't realize that until recently. And I think in corporate America, we've taken a lot of the play out of the workplace. And I'm not saying we need to have a foosball. It's... (laughs) I've done that. You can't do that. Foosball, beer on tap. We know that doesn't work. It's about authentically being able to be a little silly and have that inner child speak to you because that's your real creativity. Somebody gave me great advice recently when I was at Hoffman and I was saying, I don't know what I want to be when I grow up. And they said, well, the thing to listen to is what gave you joy when you were a kid? What was the thing that you really loved doing? And I loved making people laugh. How do I do that as a grown-up? I have zero idea. And it might just be my improv comedy. My poor family might have to come to some terrible show. But that gives me joy. And the act of play is really important. So that's I'm going to have more play in my life. I love that. So final question, how do you want to leave your mark? I want to help people figure out how they can play, where through their play, they're making other people feel something or be happy. And People that don't think that they can do it, I love helping them feel like 
Yeah, you can. Step on my shoulders. Let me have your back. I want to help you go fast, go far, and really do great in the world. I love that. Jamie, thank you so much. Thanks, Aliza. Oh, my God. And now we get to go for lunch. Lunch. Yay, yay. Thanks so much for listening to Leave Your Mark, the podcast. If you want more career advice, be sure to pick up my best-selling book, Leave Your Mark. If you want to subscribe to my career advice newsletter, Blackboard, you can do so on alizalick.com. Be sure to follow me on Instagram at alizalickxo or reach out on Twitter at alizalickt. And just remember this, if change doesn't hurt a little, it's not change. Keep on rocking.